This is a Strategist episode 986. My name is Zane Belcher. With me as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Guys, I am back. Now, for most of you, I have, I have always I've gone nowhere. Uh, but for some of you, you had to endure uh, what I can call as an absolute train wreck colliding with the car crash, uh, colliding with... I don't know what. What, Carter? Meteorite it was terrible. It was hitting, ter- the, hitting That's Earth. good. Thank it you. Yeah, like, thank you, Carter. Thank like you for finishing creating, up. It was oh. like creating a storm. It was fantastic. And, 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 and I, this is where I was going to. Uh, fantastic show, guys. Way good to show. hold down thank the fo- forward for our Patreon members. Uh, from start to very quick finish, it was a uh, it was a good episode. It was you know what it was. It was too much content in too little time. That's where you got it wrong. Okay, yeah. you well, gave them too so much value, too yeah. much value in 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 in. in, in I'm going to keep delaying it in 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 a container that was too compact, Corey. That's what the people got, and that's what they did not deserve. We, we yeah, did miss fair. your verbosity for sure. Yeah. Is it is it verbosity or is it lack of preparation, Carter? <laughs> or is Hard it, to tell. It, yeah, okay. Hard good. to tell. We we had prepared, I think, four topics, and by prepared, we sent to each other a note that said, "Hey, hey. well, Corey sent me a note because I never make any choices," <laughs> and uh, I just was like, "Yeah, let's do it." And then we went through them, and he didn't want to do half of them. He sent them to me, and he didn't want to do them. So the mood it didn't strike me when I was actually there. You know, it's like how you write three speeches you write your first draft you write your second draft and then you throw it all out yeah. and you give whatever speech you want when you're on the on the stage there yeah. there was a moment at the 22 minute mark where i thought fuck we've been talking about this forever and then yeah. i saw it was the 22 minute mark and i thought that's the value zane Belgi brings right there <laughs> you know? asking asking uh short we questions to, longly <laughs> we, we tried to do some deep dives did not work yeah yeah, didn't work. I didn't listen. Diving. I don't listen to any of the shows. Uh, I I heard it was great though. I really did. Uh, thank you for inviting me back. And uh, uh, what a gift! What a gift uh, that is it's now a, available. It's a great plug you've let us off with for our Patreon. Listen, uh, yeah. I, I I think people are intrigued. They're like, if it's a car crash, <laughs> people want to watch. Okay, I know how the algorithm of the listener's ear works. <laughs> I know I know what what there's I'm a, selling. Okay, there's a fifty percent better chance that we're going to get canceled when you're not with us. So. People are, are definitely tuning in for that. Uh, uh, Corey, uh, speaking of plugs, we are sold out on the Edmonton show. Is that is that correct? That is correct. We have sold out on the Edmonton show. We are looking mm-hmm. at seeing if we can jam a couple more seats in. No luck yet. But uh, there'll be a few hundred of you up there just um, sitting in a hall listening to us. Congratulations. You've made a good choice uh, because the alternative is you're not even able to do that, which is what a lot of yeah. you are now forced to <laughs> contend with. It's good. Yeah. Great nagging of the audience, Corey. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, let's move it on to our first segment. Our first segment, Alberta, Potpourri. Stephen Carter, we have not hit on the province of Alberta in a while, or at least I haven't. I have no idea what you guys talked about on Thursday. Did you hit on any Alberta-related topics? We we finished on Alberta. Oh, you did? Okay, great. Yeah. So you, you finished. You, you, <laughs> the project is complete. Can I move on? No, we, we I think we said, uh, let's talk about Jason Kenney, and uh, Corey ended the show. So I'm so glad that it felt it had gone a little long. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. At the one thirty something mark. Guys, 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 guys. Amateur hour. Amateur hour. And you can get that amateur hour for as little as six dollars a month. Okay. That's what I'm saying. You can uh I want to talk about a few things that have happened here in Alberta, but let me start with this particular story, which I know both of you have been 
at least in the Twitterverse, giving some red hot takes, or maybe it is in the Twitterverse. Maybe it's on our, our, our WhatsApp chat. I want to talk about cabinet confidentiality. Alberta's chief uh, medical officer of health uh, can't claim cabinet, cabinet confidentiality to prevent the divulging of some of her declosed uh, for her closed door recommendations on the COVID-19 restrictions a judge has ruled. The ruling came amid a court proceeding uh, whose plaintiffs are arguing Alberta's pandemic public health orders overseen by Dr. Dina Hinshaw violated constitutional rights. Uh, the judge has asked three questions. Uh, this is Justice uh, Barbara Romain proposed asking Hinshaw three questions in a private hearing before deciding whether to make the answer to those questions public and as part of the hearing evidence. The three questions just so folks who may not have been tuned into this story, are, number one, did the Premier and Cabinet ever direct you, Dr. Hinshaw, to impose more severe restrictions in your Chief Medical Officer of Health orders than you had recommended to them? Question two, did Cabinet ever direct you to impose more severe restrictions on particular groups such as churches, gyms, schools, and small businesses than you had recommended to them? And did you, finally, question number three, did you ever recommend to Cabinet that restrictions should be lifted or loosened at any period of time that the recommendation was refused or ignored by cabinet. Uh, Carter, we have talked about this topic before in relation to a leak uh, that came from a cabinet session and then reported on by, by a media outlet. I have not seen anything like this before. I, I, I might be wrong where a, a justice is ultimately ordering, um, in this case, Alberta's chief medical officer of health, uh, to potentially uh, not have the protections of cabinet confidentiality. Have you seen something like this before? Um, I'm sure that this has happened before. I am not sure that I have seen it happen before. I do know that cabinet confidentiality, confidentiality has been pierced by the courts, but um, it's generally not something that, that gets pierced because it is, it is an essential part of governing. And I know that when we do this on the Twitterverse, uh, we get all the all the people who say that we should be making every decision fully and and completely in the in the public eye, and that's just lunacy. Um, because not every decision is easy. I used to say that uh, you know the stuff that was easy, this the the eighty twenty stuff or even the sixty forty stuff that was all managed by cabinet ministers. That was easy stuff. The stuff that lands fifty one forty nine, and you don't really know which side the fifty one forty nine is on. Those go to cabinet, and those go to the premier's office. Um, those ones you get, you don't just get, here's the recommendation. Here's the black and white recommendation. This is what exists. Uh, you will do this or you will do nothing. Um, that doesn't exist. You get an array of options. Did, uh, you know, were there many, you know, the questions that you asked, you know, mm -hmm. um, Hinshaw, I'm sure gave, um, recommendations, uh, on both sides of those, of those, uh, those statements, because, she doesn't just walk in and say, this is what you have to do. She walks in and says, here are three, four, five different options. Here are the consequences and opportunities associated with each one, right? We know that we're trying to balance off, get, you know, removing stress from hospitals, but we're also trying to remove stress from, from people, individuals. There's mental health trade-offs. There's uh, economic trade-offs. The world is filled with trade-offs. So when she walks in the room, I'd be very, very, very surprised if she walks in and says, this is what I'm recommending, and it's simply binary a or z you know or z that's it there's no um that's very unlikely. I don't think I've ever seen that on the hard decisions. I mean you see it very infrequently even on the easy decisions 
Um, so I'll, I'll now throw it back to Corey, who's been made, who's made these recommendations to cabinet um, so that he can fill out what I've left out. Oh, do you think I'm no longer here? Is this, is this back to Thursday? <laughs> oh, sorry, Corey. I forgot uh, that Zane was here. I'm now going to throw it to Corey, who's made some of these decisions and recommendations in cabinet before. Uh, Corey, uh, what do you think? And Carter, it is Zed. For everyone in the audience who heard A to Z, oh, Carter. We're opening Carter. up the American audience. This I'm going true. to Nashville this week. I have a tremendous confidence we're going to really bolster the American audience. Corey, your take on this from the perspective of Just president, have you seen that, it before? Hey? Just- yeah, no, 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 it's fine. I mean, any Stephen Carter humble brags we know are going to lead into AFL scores and, I, and, and how you've done. And I don't, I don't care. We're over that, Carter. We're over it. Corey, from the perspective of have you seen this before, but also to the point Carter was making at the heart of it, the importance of cabinet confidentiality. I think I agree with him in general on some of the specifics at Quibble. So for sure, nothing gets to cabinet and has a big, robust cabinet decision if it's difficult, right? Um, you, you would either either have it on the consent, consent agenda for cabinet. So it would be sort of listed there as, mm-hmm. yes, this requires an order in council, but no, we don't really need to talk about it. And it would move on through or it would be rather perfunctory and, and move through. But if you're actually having a discussion, if there's actually a back and forth, it's because it's tough. It's because it's tricky. That doesn't mean that uh, elected officials don't get recommendations from uh, the the public service, though. So the general format is you will have a recommended option and then you will have alternatives that were also reviewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But be be aware, right? It's it's more like I recommend X. Here are the downsides with X. If you decide to do Y instead, you can mitigate against downside Z1 and 2 by taking these particular courses of action here. So. it's it's not I, I mean, it would not be accurate to say there's not a recommendation. Most of the time, there is almost always a recommendation. I've seen cabinet documents come forward without recommendations. Those tend to be messy times because there's nothing mm. to kind of anchor the conversation. But that said, it, it's a recommendation and it's not as though it is it is immutable fact. It's not scientific theory like gravity. It's this is what I think based on these things, but the nature of any cabinet decision that comes forward is this is why it comes to cabinet, right? Because there needs to be additional lens put on it beyond what the public service could do. The public service may have an expertise in this particular area. This is a good example. Dina Hinshaw has got an expertise in medicine and public health. Uh, but is she aware of some of the political consequences? And I don't mean like, is it bad for the UCP? I mean, will the province light itself on fucking fire? Right. Will we have discord that then bleeds into the Justice Department or Mm. children's services or community and social services? And it's the job of cabinet to weigh things broader than just what the recommender can bring forward. Otherwise, you wouldn't have that conversation at all. Why in the world would you even bother discussing it? You would just say automatic rubber stamp. Boom. Go. Let's move on. So uh, an important part of our system is that cabinet discussion and cabinet oversight. And the bottom line, what spills out of all of this is. They're the ones who are responsible. If you love the decision, they're responsible. If you hate the decision, they're responsible. Don't credit and don't blame the public service that is supporting them on this. It's the nature of our system because those are the ones that at the end of the day are on the ballot. Carter, simply walk me through what the lifting of cabinet confidentiality on these three questions could mean, uh, both in terms of the specific issue, perhaps, but maybe even if you want to start broadly on what this could mean for for precedent, because we know at the same time that there are a number of judicial review applications in relation to COVID-19 public health restrictions across the country. 
So there are ramifications here. But walk us through and and, and walk um, those that may not have been inside a cabinet meeting, a cabinet room, have seen those recommendations, maybe under maybe beyond this conversation, understand the vital importance of cabinet confidentiality. Uh, what the ramifications here could be? Yeah, I think that the the big ramifications are. Uh, um... You know, th- this idea that you move to a singular expert, right? Uh, Dr. Dina Hinshaw is the expert who is going to determine the outcome and determines whether or not an action should or should not be taken. And the rest of cabinet should relatively be mute on the issue of whether or not um, an action is taken. So when the bureaucracy comes forward and says, you know, this is what you must do, um, this is what you must do in order to protect, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, audiences. In, in in the province of Alberta, then, you know, we really are kind of making a huge mistake. There is no single solitary one person who has the right answer to these questions. Um, were, the in, you know, were the questions completely simple? Were they completely easy to understand? Then maybe, yes, there is a singular answer to them. But the real and there is no singular expert, because as soon as Dr. Hinshaw says, this is what we should do. You know, um, across the way, there's the, de- the the deputy minister of education saying we're not prepared to deal with that, mm. right? Or, or the deputy minister of um, social services. You know, we are going to have these problems if you do that because it turns out that one of the things you really find out when you get into that cabinet room is that there is very little not connected to everything else, right? A connects to Z in a very quick model, right? It, it goes right through all the various ministries. Um, it it you know, you can make a case, you know, infrastructure and transportation are pretty far outside of it. But then you start building hospitals, you start building, uh, you know, traffic systems around, you know, everything ultimately has impact on the other things. So you must not fall into the trap that there is a singular expert. And I'd say that that's the biggest one. I do want to go into the chill, but mm. I don't think that these three questions necessarily place that chill on cabinet briefings. So there is a chill that we need to get to at some point, but I don't think it's part of this answer. Uh, Corey, talk to me about the ramifications you see from something like this, right? From your perspective, um, should this become public? What do you kind of see in terms of the ramifications for this particular file, which we can discuss, but also more more broadly around this concept of cabinet confidentiality? Well, maybe I'll take them in reverse. I think broadly, it's an important precept. The idea of caucus or sorry, cabinet confidentiality, the idea that you can have a conversation about the downsides, about the upsides of something, disagree about them strongly, state cases as people do when arguing in more extreme terms than perhaps are warranted. You know, this could happen. Talk about the worst case scenarios and move them through without worrying that uh, you're going to have some cherry picking that occurs down the road of, okay, these were the worst case scenarios that cabinet hand waved away, just didn't care about. Uh, as they mm. made this decision, because that's not really what's happening in that situation. They're they're talking about it. They may disagree about what those worst case scenarios are. And um, and ultimately, the sausage is made in an ugly way. Right. You don't necessarily want to see how it's done. My fear is if politicians think that the advice from officials will generally become public and we'll get to the specific case here in a minute, uh, which probably doesn't go that far. Uh, but if they think that, then you're going to have a couple of things going on. First, most obviously, they're not going to ask for the advice. They're just going to make the decision absent the advice. Cabinet will become theater. Uh, It will be, we had a great discussion about why this is the only course of action 
that we could possibly take. We all cheered the leader in a five-minute standing ovation, so minuted, you know, as ordered by uh, Her Majesty the Queen in right of Alberta, right? Like uh, you mean like a performative exercise? <laughs> Absolutely, in some ways. right. So you you will have moved the conversation outside of cabinet and probably moved it outside of the public service. It'll be going back and forth on political emails. Uh, like discussing WhatsApp or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what's the upside? What's the downside in ways that we cannot reach it uh, as the public? And by reach it, I don't mean see it. I mean, affect it right through expertise that our public servants move forward. But, but Corey, can I the, ask a question? Uh, not okay, done. Jump in. So jump in. The second thing. Jesus Christ. Is, <laughs> that we, we, very we didn't impressive. miss hey. you at all. We didn't miss see, you at you all. Just thing. slow down, man. Jesus slow Christ. Down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ, Corey. You're trying to pack way too much in. <laughs> the Go second ahead. thing Keep I going. would say is, um, if you are a public servant and uh, you think that what advice you're going to give could potentially embarrass the gang down the road, the elected officials, that could be very career limiting for you. You might not go out intending to embarrass the government, but let's say you give advice that's the opposite of what the government does. And that advice is then on the front page of the Globe and Mail. Well, you might feel like, oh, my God, I'm pretty exposed here. And now it looks like I'm the guy who didn't want to do what was going to be done. And now I'm in a lot I, of trouble. So you're not going to offer that advice, right? You're just not going to provide that advice for it. And then the third thing would be, if you actually think that the system is going to still move the way it is, what's going to end up happening is you're going to create this huge pressure for politicians to jam people who agree with them into the public service. So you don't have messy discussions and we'll be poorer for it because it'll mean there won't be as many contrary point of views kicking around to strengthen these things as they go. Carter, I have to ask you, is there a counter argument here? Is there a valid counter argument for maybe not dismantling cabinet confidentiality outright, but is there a valid argument that, you know, this should be public domain conversation, that there is a, a there's positive downstream effects and ramifications to this? I think that the the pos the, the only argument for it is that not everything needs to be protected by the same cabinet confidentiality shield. So the shield does not need to be the same for every cabinet discussion. Some you know, and we can equate it to city council, right? City council goes in camera, and then for their most part, they're doing their their actual meetings out in the public view. So the information is received from uh, administration uh, in public, and then the 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 decision is made in public uh, for large swaths of the decision making. I'd say about ninety percent of decisions are made that way. But then there are times when they go in camera and there's a huge mm. population that says we do too much stuff in population in, in camera. I mean, Jeremy Fark has tried to make that case in the last election. There was not enough openness and transparency, but the problem with openness and transparency, when you're trying to do some things, when you're setting your union negotiating strategy, you can't do it in open public conversation. You cannot have a conversation about which land you need to purchase for your LRT. You can't decide how you're going to model a decision with uh, the flames for a new saddle dome. Uh, those things simply cannot be done in the glare of uh, of the public's eye. Um, believe me, it, council works better when the public watch them. I think it'd be better if council was doing it in public. They simply cannot do it in public. Um, so I'm actually a much bigger fan of the simple cabinet confidentiality piece that says we're going to make these decisions in private and then we bring those decisions forward as united government obviously can't work when you've got 15 ununited people uh, running a city government but it can work when you've got members of the same party who are able to 
keep, keep in mind, it's not just the bureaucrats that are putting forth their positions. It's also the individual politicians that are putting forward their positions. They are saying in open discussion that they disagree with the premier or they disagree with the minister or it's going to have unintended consequences. And all of them fall behind whatever the decision is ultimately. Even if they voiced strenuous opinion, opinions through the conversation, they all fall in line. And I think that's a good way of doing governance. I know that that's the way that most nonprofit organizations work. Um, when the decision is made by the nonprofit board, everybody is supposed to stand behind the organization, uh, which means standing behind the decision that was made in the best interest of the organization. Corey, I think that there's some value to that. Corey, is there a counter argument here? Is there a credible opposing view to the case that you've you've put out on the table around the ramifications that that could exist if cabinet confidentiality is perhaps pierced or, or even further broken? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, the municipal issue, I think, is a bit of a red herring because it's so fundamentally different, right? Uh, at the end of the day, I think the biggest difference is cabinet is the boss of the public service in a way that council is not the boss of the entire city, like not directly in a managerial line sense. And so the system is just a little bit different. Party politics aren't there and that ad has consequences. So the arguments, uh, let's, let me tell you what I think is not the best argument. The idea that just everything government does should be public. And, and mm. Carter's done a pretty good job of laying out some of them in passing here. You know, commercial interests cannot be just, you, you want to know the things that shouldn't be public, just pick up the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act and look at the exceptions. Uh, things that are really going to get you in hot soup intergovernmentally, right? Like it, negotiations with commercial contracts where you might even be exposing the secrets of a commercial partner that the government has, right? It, should that be something that they should be subjected to because of this radical view of transparency? Human resource documents, the idea that uh, you could get access to case files of individual people on H, that I think we can agree those are not things that should be public. A lot mm -hmm, of what mm -hmm. government does is fundamentally not the business of public as a whole. Uh, the argument you could make is that their decisions are. I, I don't love it because I, of all of the reasons I said about chill. Uh, but maybe an easier to reach argument, something that's right there, is that generally what Stephen and I have said is correct, but that there are exceptions to every rule. And mm. there are some things that you could point to in this particular situation that make it exceptional. Let's start with the obvious. This is a once in, you know, a hundred year pandemic. Hopefully we're not going to have another one for a hundred years. And the consequences to human life and economy are just so insanely severe that the normal rules don't apply. That Okay. That's, that's actually a pretty reasonable thing to say, in my opinion. The second is that it is, um, it's just messy when you're talking about the chief medical officer of health, because the way the acts are written actually suggests she has final say on some of these things, not cabinet. So in some ways, is the recommendation stream actually, as it's written, going the other way, mm. right? Are, are they saying things that they want her to do, but it's ultimately her decision? That is super murky because of the way the Public Service Act works and the way it butts up against some of the other acts that are there. Dina Hinshaw's in a bit of a no-win situation there. But if you wanted to talk about, could it be different in this case? That's something I think you could point to. Uh, I think the consequences of playing that out are alarming because of, uh, you know, the precedent that we might have in other situations where they just shut out health advice for all of the reasons we've talked about earlier. But that would be an argument I think that I could definitely entertain in terms of of why this situation is is a little bit different. So for me, uh, you know, ultimately it comes down to I think the rules are good. 
I think that uh, there is an exception to every rule. And uh, you can go through situation X, situation Y, situation Z. Uh, and sometimes you hit Z and it's just not something that you, you want to deal with, right? You don't want the normal rules to apply. And this might be one of those cases. Carter, let's talk about the politics and let's talk about this particular situation. Is this an exception in your mind? Should opposing uh, parties or uh, those who, who want these to, to effectively be out in the open keep pushing harder and more aggressively that they do? Do you feel like this is, to Corey's definition, perhaps one of those exceptional cases where, uh, where we do indeed um, try to unearth and, and make this public? Well, this is an exceptional case. Um, because, you know, and, and that, it, the reason it's an exceptional case is something that Corey alluded to. Uh, two years ago when the pandemic began, two and a half years ago, two, how many months? I don't know. Uh, a gajillion years ago when the pandemic began, there was an open question in terms of what the chief medical officer of health had in terms of broad guidelines. Um, there was an argument to be made that the chief medical officer of health did not require cabinet uh, approval to take any of the actions um, that she deemed to be appropriate. Um, so had you know, if you were making that argument and you were able to say, this was never a cabinet discussion. Um, we need to understand why it was brought back into cabinet, and why cabinet was discussing it in the first place. This this responsibility, uh, without changes to the act, lied only with CMOH. And if if anything was changed, anything didn't you know happen there, uh, it was a matter of public record, and therefore every discussion that was made by CMOH should be part of the public record. I think you could make that case. Um, I don't think that it would have been successful. Because ultimately, it did get moved to cabinet. Because ultimately, I think that cabinet has the right to pull any decisions back to itself. Um, because frankly, they're the government, and bureaucracy isn't the, isn't the government uh, in the same fashion. Yes, they are the government. Corey, you'll correct me later. Um, but the the other reason that it's not is that it's just one person, right? Like I, if if it, if if I were the CMOH at the beginning of the pandemic, I wouldn't want to be running around. Uh, making all the decisions by myself. Um, the truth of the matter is we didn't know enough. We we didn't understand how many impacts it would be. All of these things led to complicated decisions. And I would have been asking for the opinion of my bosses and my colleagues and my staff, which I'm sure Dr. Hinshaw was doing. Um, that's where, as soon as you go into the cabinet room, um, the same way that you know your staff's probably not going to run to the media and, and give them the background of everything you're discussing. Um, there should not be there should be a prohibition on cabinet running to the media and telling everybody what they said. So I, I still think that while there could have been an exception in this case, there shouldn't have been. Corey, I have to ask you from a political standpoint, if we kind of move on um, to thinking about the politics, if the answer to these three questions, did the premier and cabinet ever direct you to impose more severe restrictions than you recommended? Did cabinet ever direct you to impose more severe restrictions on particular groups? And did you ever recommend to cabinet that restrictions should be lifted or loosened at any period in time that was refused or ignored by cabinet? Could the answer to these three, the scope questions, if should they become public, be the smoking gun in some way, a political smoking gun? Like, how would you think about it if, if, um, because I suspect these are not going to be straightforward answers. But I'm kind of curious how if you are, uh, let's say, the Alberta NDP or if you are uh, one of the, the groups that has been criticizing the UCP government in their uh, way that they handled the pandemic, how you want to be preparing for some of these answers to perhaps become public? 
Well, I, I don't know. I mean, like, actually, I, I think this is one of those things where people desperately want answers to questions like this to become smoking guns or say like, OK, we see this was not actually all based on medical advice. Aha, gotcha. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that I just, seems to be the very simple narrative sure. that I'm sure many are hoping for. Yeah. But I guess I fundamentally reject. I, I guess we don't need any more information to come to conclusions around that. And this goes back to what I was saying at the start, which is ultimately these decisions were cabinets to make. And if cabinet made good ones, they should be applauded. And if they made bad ones, they should be condemned. And it doesn't really change the situation for me an awful lot, whether that was against the recommendations of the chief medical officer of health or with the recommendations. I don't give them a pass just because it's with and I don't <laughs> like I don't I don't condemn them just because it's against. I, I weigh the facts more simply than that. The statistical data that goes into it, the decision that came out of it, both of which are actually not subject to the same cabinet confidence uh, restrictions that are out there. Carter, play the proxy of the public for me. Should Corey, right? Like, I, I get what you're saying there, Corey. I really do. But I, I wonder for the public, Carter, should there have been that added ripple that, yes, the cabinet was fully accountable for whatever direction they went to, they get all the credit, all the blame. But if there were ripples of they ignored advice or they went contrary to directions of the chief medical officer of health, isn't there political wins and hay to be made in that regard? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think there's hay to be made regardless. I mean, there's always hay to be made. But the thing that makes this so interesting to me is it's asking the question that's kind of the opposite of what Twitterverse looked at, right? The Twitterverse mm-hmm. was like, mm-hmm. cabinet is going the wrong way. We should be putting in more restrictions. Where's Dr. Hinshaw? She should resign because these restrictions aren't enough. And this questions are, the questions are, did should there have been more restrictions? Should we have put yeah. in, you know, like, or, or should we have ended the restrictions quickly, quicker? Should we have had fewer restrictions? Did cabinet go too far in imposing these restrictions? That to me is the exact opposite of what the Twitterverse thinks that they're seeing, right? The Twitterverse is is expecting some sort of bombshell where they could have been protected from this by Dr. Hinshaw. When, if this comes out, I mean, depending on what is said, we, you know, cabinet may have protected us um, from Dr. Hinshaw, which is fascinating because it's not the answer that, you know, the left, especially have, the left. It's not the story people have been certainly telling exactly. themselves. The story is that we were duped by cabinet. The politicians led by Jason Kenney fucked us over. Hinshaw, if she'd been left in charge, would have had our backs. And I think it's the it, it may not be the truth. Uh, this is interesting. This is where I wanted to go to, Corey. I want to get your take on this. And Carter, I've gotten here. I've gotten to exactly where I wanted to go to 30 minutes. And uh, Corey, uh, that's how you do a show, guys. Let me tell you. Let me you know, tell you about how you do a show. We, we did miss you. Yeah. <laughs> this, is Corey, just part, this is just section one of the first segment, right? Like, this isn't yeah, even the they, whole they, first <laughs> segment. This is Alberta Potpourri. So that makes me think that there are other parts of this segment that we are po. now at the 30 this minute. Is, yeah. This is the po. This is okay. the po, Corey. Okay. The puri okay. is left. The puri. I don't know. <laughs> okay. High quality content. Hogan, you're going to jump in on this. Well, I, exactly what Stephen said. I think that, but it, this is, again, underlines my point. It, say that we get to a situation where Dina Hinshaw was recommending that these things be ended faster and cabinet said, no, 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 that's that we can't do that yet. We can't do that. That's not our read of the situation for all of these reasons. All of these other things we're bringing in besides just your advice, Dr. Hinshaw. Does that mean we're all of a sudden supposed to feel better about the decisions the government made? I, I mean, like this is 
I, I say no. I mean, I don't think it fundamentally should change anybody's view of the situation that's out there. But, but I think the it will, are don't the ones you, Corey? They are or reverse. Yeah, I, okay. So I do think it will. Uh, but th- that's the that's the kind of moral hazard that gets created here. This idea that all of a sudden advice from officials is going to be weaponized and politicized. And so if if I were a political party and I had aspirations of returning to government, I would be very careful about cheering on these kinds of activities because it's not so long until, you know, the shoe's on the other foot. Uh, Carter, write for me the UCP game plan on this issue. Corey, I'm going to ask you the same question for the NDP. What is the UCP game plan on this issue? Um, you, you don't have a lot of choice in regards to what ultimately the justice recommends here, but how are you politically dealing with this story? Are you just minimizing it, moving on? What's your message? And Corey, the same question for you in a second in regards to what the Alberta NDP needs to start thinking about as it relates to this story, especially if the hero villain uh, narrative of where Dr. Hinshaw fits might be more murkier than, than perhaps uh, people have communicated uh, in the past. And we don't know this. But Carter, first to you on the UCP, what do you think? Well, I think there's two choices for them. I think that number one, they can say this is such a uh, limited question that, you know, these three questions are so limited, it does not impact confidentiality. Uh, this is a very limited set. Um, of course, you know, and I, I would suggest that uh, anytime that she answered the question that she was making a recommendation, uh, one way or the other, um, you know, like to, to, to go further or faster or whatever, that it also be noted that she also made a case for not doing so. Right. Like, like make sure that if you're going to discuss this, that it never be a binary or singular answer. Uh, I would direct, you know, Dr. Hinshaw, I'd work with her to make sure that she's given uh, enough space to answer the question fully and completely, not in a simple yes, no. You know, were you ever offered, you know, did you ever suggest that we should move through the restrictions faster? Yes. Well, that's not in the UCP's interest, um, in part because the group that supports them. Uh, would be pretty put off by this, you know, the, 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 the right wingers. And this certainly wouldn't help Kenny at this time as he's getting closer and closer to his supposed uh, leadership review. Um, the other, the, the, the other side of it is that they could still appeal and, um, and fight back through the courts. And maybe that's still available to them. Um, maybe they'd choose to do that. Cabot, I believe that cabinet confidentiality is important enough to protect uh, to fight it to the nth degree and push it as far as you can. There may be an unintended consequence of doing that, though. You may get to the top and get the decision that you don't want, in which case, um, you know, this small this small problem is, is worth bearing rather than getting to the end of a discussion uh, with an outcome you just don't want. Corey, what is the NDP thinking about here? What are their considerations? How are they preparing? Well, I would recommend that they do not lose focus on the actual opponent here, right? And so it a, any conversation about is it Dina Hinshaw's fault or Jason Kenney's fault is not is not productive because right now the bulk of blame, you know, for lack of a better word, is on Jason Kenney. So why would you even open up an ambiguous conversation about that? Yes or no? I mean, I, I wouldn't chase this one too much at all. I would say there's one person uh, responsible for that. Not even one person. There's... There is the UCP and there is the UCP cabinet led by Jason Kenney, and they are responsible for the decisions that made, including disappearing for a month as we're going into Delta Wave, including not acting very quickly on Omicron, including rushing us out of Omicron and uh, and making uh, all sorts of edicts that force societies, force cities 
uh, out of these decision-making constructs as we now move into what looks like to be sixth wave, seventh wave, eighth wave, move on forever, you know, in perpetuity. I don't think that this is a fruitful conversation to get involved in. I, I think when you look at the, the substance of it, as I said, there's probably reason to believe that you don't actually want to fight too hard for breaking cabinet confidence as as a precept. And Stephen's right. Like this could go all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court could define cabinet confidence in a way that has every province lighting their hair on fire, has the prime minister of Canada lighting their hair on fire. It might not be worth it, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it, it, it's not if you take the bait and if you jump into the politics of it and you invite that conversation and you invite ambiguity as to who's responsible. I do not see how that helps you as the NDP. I, you know, this is one of the, you don't need to swing at every pitch. This is not one of those pitches I would be swinging at. Nicely done. We're going to leave that first part of Alberta Pro Prix there. Stephen Carter, look at this excellent performance. I need to say, by the way, Stephen Carter, I was up in Edmonton doing some speaking gigs. A lot of fans of the pod. Surprisingly, a lot of fans of Stephen Carter. I have to say that if if there is a in-person poll of fans of Stephen Carter Versus the fans of Corey and I, Stephen Carter's definitely in second yes. or third place. It is, you are definitely <laughs> in second or third place, Carter. I am <laughs> one of the top you know. three strategists. You, you are one of the top three, certainly. Top oh, yeah. of all time, yeah. Uh, and on a totally unrelated <laughs> note, I just want to know, just want to let folks know, we are opening up a new Patreon category. Uh, it is, of course, the $104,000 category. So if there's anyone in Alberta <laughs> that is open to contributing $104,000, to uh the strategist patreon um we will more than happily take your money uh, there is a payment plan uh that we are happy to facilitate for you but of course there's a new uh, category on our patreon for one hundred and four thousand dollars. if someone's got some loose change uh sticking around uh, anywhere across uh, this fine province just wanted to put the that negative out outcome is that i would leave so uh, i don't think we're gonna see i don't think we're gonna don't, see one hundred four thousand dollars with a good time steven don't i'm do saying that. i'm out of here 104 that's my price <laughs> bye <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's so that you're it's so, so clear it's so accurate with uh with the uh, uh what it takes to i have will Stephen also Kirk- leave for 130 i am i'm up <laughs> to i'm up to either one. Oh god carter carter i want to talk about something else is there a strategy of perhaps scarcity happening in our province of alberta and i know many people who said who thought when i said alberta appropriate i would be getting right into the ucp leadership review I, i'll get into a bit of that it's been pretty quiet on that front i'll touch on that but while that happens there's a lot of stuff that's happening as it relates to policy as it relates to ramifications on workers rights one of the things that that we've been talking about is is there a deliberate or perhaps not so deliberate strategy here carter on shortages cb teachers facing teacher shortages as substitutes can't cover absences we've seen that story we've seen uh, more family doctors uh, a dramatic drop in family physicians accepting new patients uh, has left many albertans without a family doctor to call their own we're also seeing uh, discussions between crown prosecutors in the province are ongoing with hopes of preventing a mass strike action that paralyzed the justice system you know, the leadership review, I think, is very attractive, very sexy, uh, a lot of political theater, palace intrigue. But there's stuff happening in Alberta, Carter. And this is one of the through lines that I think is worthy for us to discuss. So maybe I'll get your take. Do you feel like there's a deliberate like strategy of, of scarcity or, or, or shortage that is being um, implemented by this UCP government? No, I think that there's uh, the world changed, right? The world changed over the last two years. 
Uh, we've seen nurses leave the nursing profession. We're seeing teachers leave the teaching profession. Um, how this particular government tends to respond to these things isn't particularly um, positive. Uh, we, we can see better responses around the world. But these are worldwide phenomena of changes that are happening because people have taken a look at their lives and said, is this what I really want? And they've gone off and done other things. There are better careers, more interesting careers, no careers that they want to um, jump into. So I don't necessarily think that we are any different than any other jurisdiction, especially on things like teachers and and, uh, and nurses and those types of things. I just think that we respond differently. And by differently, I mean worse uh, because we're not we don't have a government that wants to. Uh, the values of education, for example, the way that I value education, I think that the healthcare situation is going to be tragic in the coming months and years uh, as we deal with um, the fallout of, uh, you know, family physicians saying, is this really what I want to do? Uh, you know, the, the, the lack of appreciation from the government, uh, finding greener pastures, which we've all gone through before. I mean, we went through the brain drain, right? I don't remember which decade that was in. Um, ironically, probably around the time that Corey was born, you know, like that's the brain that came in when all the other brains left. And, you know, this is just part of it. It's just part of what people are deciding to do is they're, they're looking at their overall lives and saying, I'm not prepared to put up with this particular type of shit. Uh, I will not be a crown prosecutor and not make real money. I can go to the other side and make a hell of a lot more, but I want to be a crown prosecutor. I believe in the system. Okay. Give me my money. So this is all part of the the ongoing shift that we're seeing as a result of the pandemic. Corey, do you agree with Carter's thesis here that that's what we're seeing here? Or uh, do you feel like there's something more deliberate perhaps happening in the, in, in, in Alberta when we're seeing these shortages and the scarcity across the board? Well, I think there are global trends and Stevens put his finger mm-hmm. on a couple of them there. People have talked a lot about the great resignation. The data is pretty mixed on that, whether that's actually a thing or just people frustrated and venting. And there's a lot of boomerang employees who are then returning to the professions they swore they would quit. Um, so there are, you know, there are bigger things that need to be considered. Yeah, sure. And um, obviously, that's going to have some effect here in Alberta. But you've got to compare Alberta to other jurisdictions. You've got to compare it to British Columbia, to Saskatchewan, to Ontario. And when you start lining them up, some of it doesn't look any different and some of it actually looks a little bit worse. And and part of it is because there's been a narrative for the past couple of years that things are not great in certain sectors of Alberta, not a great place to be a teacher, not a great place to be a doctor, not a pl- great place to be a healthcare worker more generally. Is that true? Isn't that true? That's in the eye of the beholder. But when that narrative takes over and you've got people who are outside of this province considering roles in this province, in those professions, and everyone in those professions in the province seems miserable. Yeah, you're going to have staff shortages. People are going to say, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem great. Uh, and, you know, we could go down a lot of different rabbit holes here about what what people want to work somewhere. Because in Alberta, it's always been, yeah, we pay a little bit more. Well, money. Yeah. not only are we eroding that right the, through, you know, contracts that are a little bit leaner along the way, but in a world where you can do a lot of jobs from almost anywhere, it can't just be about the the money that you get because you can work remotely in a different jurisdiction. So how do we make this the most livable, most exciting, most interesting place uh, is a question we should all be seized with. But 
to your question about is this intentional, I think it is not so much intentional as it is a very obvious consequence of opening mm. the an eight hundred front war, right? When you are when you are battling with doctors on on uh, compensation, when you are battling with teachers on basically everything, when you are battling with uh, crown prosecutors on workload and uh, you know really driving them hard on things like the Jordan principle, but not not actually providing resources behind it because we're in more resource constrained times, which is a choice Alberta made, then yeah, you're going to have an awful lot of things that could light up on fire in terms of staffing challenges. And we seem to be hitting a lot of them now. And, and I guess that really what I would say is there's, you know, it's that old business adage. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There was nothing free here. There was not just a bunch of money that was being poured into these areas that you could take out without consequence. And we are dealing with consequence now. And sometimes these consequences take years to years to show. And of course, if you've lived in Alberta long enough, you'll be familiar with in the 90s when there were big cuts to healthcare, the massive overspending that had to occur in the 2000s to, to compensate, you know, big bonuses paid to nurses to bring them into the province, massive contract increases, crazy management rights given away to doctors in, you know, the late 2000s early 2010s and that was because that was the price of doing business after the price of doing business the other way so um we should all keep an eye on it and, and we should keep in mind that it's very easy in politics to just get into lazy platitudes and say well the only reason this is not perfect is because the other guys didn't manage it well or they gave away a bunch of stuff for free rarely is it so simple and this sort of ties back to the idea of the public service it's the same public service who is helping make these decisions all of the time. So, uh, it, you know, it ain't easy and it has consequences. Carter, you're smiling here. I want to get your, your reaction before I ask you a more pointed question. I think that Corey's exactly right. I mean, there's an ebb and, you know, the, the pendulum swings back and forth and every decision that we make has a consequence that we see uh, later in the game. You know, um, you know, it wasn't like the NDP ran up expenditures, uh, in their time that, you know, everybody has this kind of thought that that's what happened. But actually, there was an awful lot of zeros in a lot of contracts that the NDP well, did. I, I can't think of a contract without zeros. Uh, no, there was zeros, zero, zeros. zero, zero, zeros. And those zeros all have a consequence. And when the UCP comes in, the consequence is, especially when you hit the bump again, and all of a sudden you go from no money to all the money. Um Okay, well, you've got your money. Now I want my money. I think we talked about it on the podcast. The, the, this big windfall of cash is going to be, you know, people are going to expect to see their fair share. In their and pockets. When they don't, yep. Yeah, when they don't get it, when their taxes are going up, when there's uh, costs that are going up, uh, people are going to be pissed. Um, but, you know, until the, <laughs> the, well, someone has to take advantage of that as well. So someone somewhere is going to take advantage of, of the personal costs of the UCP government. Uh, and that'll oh. be interesting to see. Wait, what do you mean by that, Carter? Just clarify that last point for me. I don't think I still, you know, I, I, I continue to follow Rachel Notley's tweets. I read Rachel Notley's tweets more religiously than I read the Bible because I don't read the Bible. I was good. But Look, no, lowest yeah, of low. Yeah, yeah, no, got come on. Very, very low <laughs> uh, bar. Speaking but, to all those <laughs> celebrating, uh, happy yeah. continued Ramadan and uh, Eid is, of course, tomorrow. So, uh, Really looking I was going to say, that. you know, you've taken yeah. away that from no, me. No, you weren't going to say. You literally went with the Bible reference. Have. You could have gone with the Quran reference. You know, you know, you could yeah. have done that. Carter, please continue on the Rachel Notley tweets. They're all disconnected. They remain disconnected and they don't. I mean, even when they try and tie it together, 
to people's cost of living, they continue to miss the cost to humans, the cost to people. They either don't know how to speak to people, which is legitimate, or they are un uh, unable to take an issue and turn it into people. So th th this is frustrates me to no end. I continue to watch the opposition can, given uh, all these advantages and um, continue to try and win the day through the communicate, you know, through the gotcha politics. Uh, Corey, let's let's talk about this from from your perspective. You kind of put your hand up in the sense of wanting to respond to what Carter was saying here. Um, jump in on that, and then I've got some strategy related questions for for both of you in terms of how this should be handled. Because there is a case to be made that this will probably be sanded down in terms of political communications, in terms of the some of the old narratives that we have seen in the past. But Corey, your take first, and then we'll talk about the political communications here. Yeah, well, a lot of this is messaging and people's perceptions of value to, to Stephen's point about zeros, contracts with zeros, contracts with doctors that reduced payments on a lot of different areas were not necessarily as successful as people had hoped in the terms of the millions of dollars of savings that could be found. But there was there was this approach in this direction. And, and this was not the UCP's perception of things coming in, you know. Uh, the UCP coming in thought, well, we're going to get real zeros. The zeros the NDP got were fake zeros because of, you know, they must have sprinkled in a bunch of other things to get this, a bunch of other benefits or management rights or whatever, whatever it is. Um, when they sort of confirmed for themselves that actually those zeros were real zeros, then they said, well, if the NDP got zeros, we're getting negative two, negative three. Uh, but that's not where anything's landed. Everything's landed actually in positives because people will only take zeros for so long and the consequence to the system will eventually pile up. And if the situation had been different, like imagine if they'd come in and said, well, actually, after all of these zeros, we think teachers are owed 2%. We think nurses are owed 2%. We think the public service is owed 2%, whatever it is, right? Um, I just wonder, like in some ways they could, it, it would have been so wildly off brand for them. I don't think it would have happened, but I wonder if we wouldn't be dealing with some of this griping and negativity and shortages that we are now simply because of the approach that was taken was one that seemed so deeply disrespectful and set everybody off on on this uh, wild fight. Carter, you know, I, I, before I ask you about the political parties here, I should talk about what, what Corey mentioned here, which is like this 800 front war, uh, which I was, re you know, repeating what Corey said here, but this multi front war, right, that the yeah. UCP have started with many groups. A to Z. Yeah. It is that Carter. Yeah, it is that. Um, but I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm happy to have an American give us hundred four thousand dollars. So that's fine. Uh, I'm happy. To, I'm happy to take that in USD. Uh, but Carter, if you are one of these groups, right? Whether you're highlighted here as teachers or or or, or, or family doctors or uh, or other public servants, are you fighting that war against the government singularly, or is there like a case to be made that as they fight multi front wars, it's better to come? and consolidate and be part of a coalition that fights back uh, so that your issue is one of several that are, that are part of a fight back strategy. And, and I think of, I think of unions, of course, here, I think of uh, professional organizations and associations. Are you in it for yourself and is accepting the premise of a multi-front war actually victory for the government because it just kind of tires out at least some of the groups or, or is there like strategy here that is better done together? Is it better to come together? I'm kind of curious that these seem like disparate issues and disparate professional groups and disparate professions, but what's the value in terms of not accepting the government's premise that they want to fight you on your terms and you kind of come together with, 
with other groups and build a coalition? Or is that simply built for political parties, for example, the NDP to, to step into? Your thoughts on strategy here? Coalitions are, they can be stronger. They can be stronger than the individual organizations, but they most often aren't. Uh, and it comes to, I mean, the AFL, I think, is a really, you know, Alberta Federation of Labor. It's a really good example, right? They, they you know, purport to be representing the unions of Alberta. Um, but when, you, you know, push comes to shove, most of the unions in that organization feel like they're not really being supported properly, right? There's always a favoritism. And this is the problem with coalitions, right? You're, you're coming together and you think you're the most important per- player on the team. And if you're not the most important player on the team, then why would you join the team? You can go and be the most important player in your own front. And I think that this is where things break down. And in, fa- in fact, you know, if getting together was a stronger strategy, then we would see it working better. It isn't actually a stronger strategy. It works out better if you have the resources. And this, and I, big asterisks there. If you have the resources to have everybody fighting their own war on their own front, because those wars on their own fronts are super uh, distracting to government, and one or two of them can catch off that you don't expect. For example, the coal mining in the in the Eastern Rockies. No one, re- I mean, I think that yeah, everybody would say yeah, that's an important thing, but. I've never seen some, a response to an environmental issue that big, that fast, that quickly. Um, and, and it could have folded together with other environmental issues. But by keeping it separate, it actually had far more impact than if it had been folded in with the, the greenhouse gas coalitions. See, I hear, that's an interesting point, Carter, around how you feel, so I can clarify, that Government having to fight a multi-front war is actually disadvantageous to them. I, I, for some reason, have been leaning more towards the fact that I think that if they're fighting multiple wars, they're the only ones in the game that might have the resources to do so. But, Corey, I want to get your take on this. You Do you agree with Carter that the multi-front war here that they've started is actually strategic disadvantage for them and that the individual sort of fights uh, perhaps should be carried on as as such in a sense? Yeah, I do. I'm, I mean, you could roll the tape on some episodes we did two years ago uh, that were ish about this topic, right? Yeah, and the idea yeah, right. is they run around and they, they start something, but they're not necessarily finishing something with all of these various groups. And uh, the metaphor I used at the time is it's like running around a playground, punching somebody, knocking them to the ground and running and hitting the next person. Well, they're eventually going to get up off that ground and they're going to mm-hmm. start chasing you again. And the more people you have chasing you, I mean, you are, you're going to deal with the consequences of that, right? Uh, you know, at the end of the alphabet, you get to the letter Z and, and then, you know, the tune is up. <laughs> Fuck off, all of you. Honestly, honestly, I, I, Sorry. I, I, I will, can- I, I will cancel I my contract. So I will cancel my contract. Speaking of coalitions, this one, this one is really not working for me. Okay. Yeah. I realized, so- I realized the immense joy I got by now showing up on a Thursday. I mean, just the, just the what it meant to my life to not have to endure this. I just yeah. have to expect Corey to keep going. Yes. Yeah, well, look, in government, it's easy to announce things. It's hard to conclude things. That's that's just one of those simple truths of government. And the UCP government, with a very ambitious platform, you know, hundreds of policy items, as Jason Kenney himself will remind us of, that's a lot of things you get to announce, but it's not even so much that you can tick a box and say, yeah, we've created the order and council to make that real. We've passed the legislation mm. to do that. These things require time to uh, to take to ground, to actually firm up, to make that the, you know, the law of the land, not just in the letter, but in the spirit and have everybody understand what they're supposed to be doing going forward. 
And it's tough to land 200 planes at once. And that's essentially what the government is trying to do. I just I think that their ambition in many ways has been, uh, you know, we're seeing the consequences of that. And we will continue to in terms of the number of different groups that they have shaken up their world. And in many cases, those groups don't feel positive about it. And so you're going to have an awful lot of people that are running against the UCP in some way, shape or form in the next year. Okay, so Carter, to you then. What's the government strategy here? Is it to shadow box? Is it to declare early victory? Is it to ignore? Is it to choose only the fights that they can win? Can they do they sometimes just ignore certain groups and say, fuck it, I don't care if you're just loud and bickering about your uh, issue. You don't have the political power behind you. You don't have the people power behind you. I really don't care. Uh, how are you advising the UCP right now with this brand narrative? And with these multi-front wars that as they get closer and closer to an election, they have to land at least some of the planes that Corey was mentioning, don't they, Carter? Well, I mean, I would think so, but they've put them all in a holding pattern. You know, all of those planes have been put into a holding pattern while they fight on the runway. Um, and until such time as that fight on the runway <laughs> is finished. You mean the, the, the pilots and the co-pilots and the stewardesses and, and all, the, all the people <laughs> fight on the runway? They're is all that what fighting on the runway. I mean, the, the UCP is on the runway. Uh, they're having massive fights about who should be in, on, up in the control tower making these types of decisions. And all these issues are just spinning around. They're just doing the circle. Um, you know, some of them are bound to run out of gas. I'm sure that the UCP, you know, they've they've tried to back down on their eastern coal fronts. Come on, this is a good analogy. This metaphor is falling apart in front of my eyes. Keep going. This is the best He's one we've had yet, today. He's not done yet, Corey. He's not done. Yeah. I'm going to tie it all together. Yeah. But you know, with with everybody in their <laughs> he, holding patterns, he's going to land. He's going to land this plane. Some of them falling out of the sky. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, he's, some of them are falling out of the sky, like the Eastern Slopes uh, coal mining piece, which they've tried to put the rest by saying we're not doing it, and then we're doing it. Um, you know, these things need to. If, if I were advising the UCP, it would be stop your goddamn fighting, um, and get yourself into. Uh, into a place where you can decide which battles are the most important battles. I would argue at this stage, you can't pick on anybody in healthcare. It's going to be super duper hard to fight with teachers. Um, I would I would try and focus in maybe on AUPE or something along those lines, the government employees, um, and have some sort of a win because you're not going to get anything else in the the more public-facing organizations. Flair Airlines dropping from the sky. Corey, uh, over to you uh, on this no, front. No. What? No. What? <laughs> not, not our That's sponsor. not a good one. Not a good one. That's it, a good one. It is, why is it not a good one? Did I say they're landing on the ground? Did I say they're crashing anywhere? No crashing. I, say, I didn't Just say Flair Airlines crashing on the ground. I didn't say that, Corey. Why, why are, wait, they're not our sponsor. I just want people to know that. That's Flair Airlines. That's good. Uh, yeah. Corey, uh, over to you on this. <laughs> What's the government strategy here? What does it need to be if you're advising them? They oh, opened oh. up the multi-front war. We just started discussing this a couple years ago. We made the observation. Carter says that, there, that there's a holding pattern right now. What does the government need to do? Uh, and can they do anything without necessarily being clear on their, on their leadership uh, sure. situation? Well, I, I do disagree a little with Stephen. I think they are landing planes. The problem is they're not landing them fast enough. They're not going to clear the airspace before 2023. And even if that plane gets landed, we've seen some of them get off the plane and they're pretty pissed with how long they were up in the air. I think AUP is a perfect example because they have largely concluded that with the government. Well, I mean, it is concluded. And so then the 
you know, the question is not so much did did the deal happen, it's how did the deal happen and that they're mad about it. Um now if you got ten billion dollars, you can you can build a new airport. You can land a few more planes. Just to let's just really run this metaphor into the ground. Right. Oh, really push it. You're doing good. Yeah. And uh, you'll see more of that. They'll be able to solve some of their problems just by not just surrendering, but going the opposite direction and putting money in things that previously they were trying to take money out of. Like, look, stay tuned for that. That's obviously going to be happening mm. as we come towards an election here. And can they solve some of these problems with the leader they have? Yeah, absolutely. You know, with leadership questions out there, why not? Uh, because in some ways, it's not so much that it, in what we're describing right now, you're not looking for the good win. You're looking for the issue managed. And even though the public may be distracted by the UCP leadership review, that's actually in many ways a great time to manage issues where you can eat a little bit of shit, reverse on a few things. Nobody notices because they're right. not paying attention. Because this is this is not the theater. This is not that's the right. trauma. Carter, yeah. if you are if you are one of these these groups, these professions, one of these folks that have been waged a multi-front war against the UCP, what is your strategy? I threw a bit around uh, the coalition approach, but I want to ask you more specifically You've been put into a holding pattern. You've also, uh, you know, and, and this government is clearly distracted, at least some key personnel. What are you doing right now? Are you building on the issue? Are you building public support? What What would you be recommending on broad terms, knowing that there's different elements here to, to each of these movements? What are you doing in broad terms right now? Making sure that I've got a, a third party advertising group that can go forward and carry this right through the election. Um, this is the time to push it, right? The election's supposed to be in a year. I think that the TPAs uh, jump into effect. Is it six months in advance? Does anyone remember if it's six months or, or three months or whatever it is? But you've got to push, push, push to make sure that you have um, your issue being dealt with and uh, or being dropped before this next election. I mean, you're in a great position to win. You're not in a great position to win uh, your issue if the UCP get reelected. Um, if they get reelected, <clears throat> people are going to start thinking dynasty. I mean, this is not the uh, this is a challenge for uh, people to imagine that they wouldn't be a dynasty coming out of Jason Kenney's giant shit show. If the UCP actually mm. did get reelected, uh, there is very little to think that you know the the progressive side, the union side, the the issue side isn't going to be facing massive hurdles in the next four years and the four years after that, and possibly the four years after that. So this is the chance. If you want to get into this, get into it and don't wait for others to carry your water, get in there and carry it yourself. Boy, this, this brand story about Alberta that this, this topic was introducing has been alive for a while. What advice would you have for the Alberta NDP? Would it be to simplify your messaging on this and how do you do that, perhaps, if that is the advice, without necessarily kind of retreading some of the more simplistic narratives that we've been hearing for for decades in that sense? Or is that is that OK? Your your yeah. thoughts on the Albert NDP? Well, I guess I could have a couple of I, if I wanted to, I could argue why it's a problem for the NDP to have so many different arguments out there, which is just the message confusion. But I don't think it's actually a problem. What we have right now is a great opportunity for the NDP. All of the things that we were talking about in terms of. Maybe Eastern Slopes becomes an issue. Maybe with the Crown Prosecutors, it becomes an issue. This is all just going to happen. And if you're the NDP, you can look at them. You can choose the ones that reinforce your brand story, and you can amplify them during the election when everybody is looking at you and in the lead up to the election, right? You don't need to, you don't need to amplify every one of these problems that's out there. I think probably 
part of your problem if you're the NDP is you might have a bit of a kid in the candy store feeling where there's a lot of stories that you want to hit the government with, but you've got to have the discipline to say, these are really the only ones that tell the story that we want to tell, right? That reinforce the campaign messages, the ballot question that we're building towards. So um, no problem if you're the NDP. Obviously, in some ways, you almost want to be encouraging these things to to be out there organically and seeing which ones actually take, you know, take up, uh, you know, a life of their own, like the Eastern Slopes did. Um, in some ways, overmanaging it would probably be the mistake. And you don't need to do any, you don't have the problem the government does, which is what do we focus on today? You can just sit back, eat your popcorn and watch what the hell happens as the government has to bat down all of these things and is taken badly off their message by all of the incoming assaults that they're getting. We're going to move it on to our final topic in the Alberta potpourri. Yes, that's right, Carter. We we do this whole podcast for you. You know, you. beginning to end, A to Z. We do it for yeah. you, Carter. We do it for you. I, I want to talk Z. about the story about a veteran conservative activist, Al Brown, who's now fed up with the UCP. He's saying that uh, he is, uh, you know, tired of making excuses for the people who ask why the government is doing stuff. He feels like people are worn out. He's been a longstanding PC UCP volunteer. I want to focus less on on Mr. Al Brown here, the veteran activist of the of the conservative movement here in Alberta. Carter, what I want to focus on is is what we expect now in terms of the drumbeats, in terms of the storylines, as we look into the next 17-ish days heading into Wednesday. We have seen some stories that we've predicted and we knew were going to happen, and we're going to see more of those. Those fall into the category of, oh my God, the world is on fire. Some per- someone received two memberships. Someone received two voting cards. Someone who did not sign up received a membership. And the media is covering those individuals. And I'm not t- trying to minimize those, but those happen every single time. And whether those are a big deal or not, we can discuss. We see stories like this, where someone who conveniently comes out 16, 17 days before the vote says, I'm done with this, you know, cover me in an opinion column, cover my story to create a, a, a movement of momentum proxy, perhaps, for the other side. Looking at both sides, Stephen Carter, what have you seen in terms of uh, tea leaves or, or breadcrumbs, so to speak, in terms of what you might see coming across over the next 16, 17 days? What are some of the drumbeats that you expect to happen as this marches on to the 18th and then eventually to, to the 19th, which is our live show? Yeah, I mean, I think there's about 10 days left for people to mark their ballots and return them to the party. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, su- I suspect in the next 10, 10 days, we're going to see a constant stream of high-ranking, well-respected UCP um, and conservative organizers who step forward and say um, they either support Jason Kenney or they don't support Jason Kenney. Uh, that will be the warfare do you feel, that is going on. Do you feel like they're going to be pressured into doing that, Carter? Or do you feel like that's just the natural flow that both sides are working on right now to release these endorsements and where people stand? I think that, you know, I, I think Al Brown is a great example. I mean, I'm not sure anybody pushed him into doing it. I think he chose to do it on his own because he believes in his core that he is the 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 person behind the PC party and the conservative party or the UCP mm. party. The, the, you know, these these people have their own egos. They have their own expectations. That, you know, they've risen to lofty heights of constituency president, and they they expect to be heard. Uh, they're on the eighty seven person board. Um, you know, talking to the executive, discussing what should happen and what shouldn't happen. Um, you know, they have a sense of themselves that demands to be heard, and they're going to speak. 
Now, some of it might be encouraged, right? You know, should I speak? I really want to support you. Is this is this good if I come out and say something? Yes, go do that. Um, but some of it's just going to happen because the, you know, the, the people who have the egos, the people who want to be heard, are going to speak it. I mean, the same the same seventeen people that were pissed um, a year ago are still pissed now. You know, they're just not signing their name to a letter, but some of them may in the next ten days. Mm. Corey, talk to me about some of the drum beats we could expect, and then I want to get into what we. Versus what we might see versus what we should see if you were uh, if you're organizing the, the the final 10, 15 days. All right. Well, I'll preface this by saying I'm I'm not that familiar with either the PC party or the UCP, uh, you know, the activists within the organization. Every party has people who, you know, they'll rotate between central positions like volunteer positions, like being chairs of various committees, being vice president policy, being the riding president, being the past president, cycle and repeat all the way through and and. It's quite possible this Al Brown fellow is one of those individuals, right? Mm-hmm. Don't don't necessarily dispute that. I will say this is not really what I think of when I think of that drip campaign that you're describing because you have had M- MLAs. Like you've had MLAs, you've had party luminaries of very significant stature, known names across Alberta who have stood up. You've had other riding presidents stand up and call the you know the situation dire or say that this is not the right leader or or take extreme or more extreme positions than al brown has taken uh to attack the leader so this is not it's not it's not conventionally additive right like when you throw another riding president Mm. and uh all due respect to the riding presidents out there doing great work managing their organizations locally it doesn't have the same punch as some of the other names that have come before right sure Sure. What I think Don Braid was doing with his column is he was almost making it an illustrative story. Like this is this is not an everyman, you know, this is a deep party volunteer, but this is somebody who's hit their breaking point and here's why. And it's a way that mm. you can tell that story and you can hook it on something. But I don't think this is going to result in like another Al Brown story tomorrow, like not with Al Brown, but with somebody different and yeah, so yeah, on yeah. and so there's, forth. There's all the way no through. like, right, right, right. I think that in terms of those kinds of things, the shoes that are going to drop have dropped. And if they haven't, you're out of your mind it, because as it were 10 days, you've got 10 days of voting left. Most people have voted at this point. This is one of these situations where the ballot came and a huge chunk of those people immediately filled it in and sent it yes. out. Yes. And the people who didn't are the less engaged, you know, but their way out and your ability to affect this. We said this the day basically of the ballots going out, like it's kind of already pretty baked. You know, people have made up yep. their minds. They purchased their memberships that plus two weeks at this point, right? Plus three weeks. It's it's sort of done. So I can't imagine we're going to see more of a drip campaign coming out here. Um, I do think the battlefront will probably go now towards the procedural people who are mad about ballots showing up and not showing up and less about the arguments for or against a leader. Um, in some ways, it seems like the like the party boards and the courts might be the next steps if there's going to be anything along these lines in terms of additional ballots or whatnot. Now, you kind of threw out, by the way, some people have been getting multiple ballots, some people no ballots, every, every mail and vote, every party, not even mail-in vote but like when you have memberships and that membership has to show up somewhere since the dawn of time right you have a hundred thousand members this shit's gonna happen it's like it's just it's a reality it's an inevitability uh list management is difficult sometimes you've got yeah, just imagine you are Stephen carter on one list and steve stevie carts on another as somebody wrote it down really kind of shitty 
uh, you know, and when they auto sorted it from A to Z, uh, they deleted a couple of lines by mistake. And then so somebody didn't get something. These things happen. It's it's kind of simple stuff. Um, and you can't read too, too much into it, at least when you're talking about e- even a couple of dozen cases. K-A-R-T-Z, Stevie Kartz. <laughs> uh, Zed. Uh, Carter, is Corey right that that procedural is going to dominate? That there's no further, at least perhaps not planned or planted? Okay, uh, I say, Corey, am, I, am I simplifying if, your point? Yeah, jump in, Corey. I mean, Corey. only barely. I would say... If I'm wrong, these people are nuts. Like they're doing it wrong oh, because okay. most okay. people have voted already. So like I I don't sure because sure. I'll generally apply the principle of charity and assume people are not terrible at their jobs. I don't think there's another shoe to drop because if the shoe's coming now, they're using the shoe wrong. <laughs> not bad. I guess if the shoe's coming now, they're using the shoe know. wrong. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. We'll go with it. Uh, Stevie Kartz, um, you're you're on Maybe mute. Still so wrong. How can yeah. Corey be so wrong? Because this, these, these electors, the ones that are left, these are the. This is it. This could be the difference, right? You're hyper engaged. That, that's voters what I'm that, thinking. At some kind of Carter on this one, Corey. Yeah, well, you're so, so why wrong. Wouldn't they have, why wouldn't you go earlier? Like I'm not saying Who they cares? shouldn't go. Who cares? I'm, I'm People not make up their minds go. late. People oh, leave their mail in a pile. They get to it after the long weekend. People are nuts. Accept that. We understand that. People are nuts. You know, there will be people who listen to this very podcast on like Thursday of this week. And those people are crazy. Why would you listen to a topical podcast five days after it's recorded? I don't know, but they will. And they'll write us on the Twitter accounts or whatever they have. But people don't do things. <laughs> really when lost we... some steam there, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah, seriously, listen, I'm making a point. Here's the point. The point is that <laughs> everybody else to this point has cast their ballots. They're fucking gone. They don't exist. The people who haven't cast their ballots, what's going to motivate them? Well, maybe a steady string of people saying, "I used to be a Kenny supporter, but now I can't," is something that they need to hear. Maybe, maybe a steady stream of if we change the leader. We're not going to be able to beat Rachel Notley in the next election. Maybe a steady stream of something. But if you give up now and don't communicate, you're giving up the election. Giving it up. What do you think about that, Corey? Is there any appeal to that argument? Or is mm-hmm. Carter is slightly bastardizing your point, which we can accept I mean, uh, and, and find tremendous joy in. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but the broader point, the broader point, like would you, if you were in charge of um, the strategy here uh, if for either side, Put out drip-related material for that that final, perhaps slightly less engaged part of the membership to 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 move one way or another. What would your thinking be around that? Maybe oh. let me phrase it that way. Yeah, keep running your fucking campaign. My point is, if you are thinking that you're going to hold off some uh, additional MLA uh, for this eleventh hour, like we are on May first, these ballots have to be received by May eleventh. You should have done that last week, even in that crazy scheme that Carter's talking about. Yeah, call them. Yeah, tell them you can get the ballot out there. But it's going to take that deeper connection. You're not going to run this through. If you have those people, if you have those people, you should have deployed them earlier because they could have been more useful in all of the ballots that came before. Strategist listeners, just understand that Corey does his taxes on the first day that you can do your taxes. Everybody else does their taxes on the last day you can do your taxes. (laughs) Okay, so you're wrong. You're different. Everybody else procrastinates, period. You're welcome. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll get some data this week as to how many votes are already in. And I would bet a lot of money it's not going to change that materially. 
you know, I, I would say probably you've got 75% or more of the votes in it. Would this you point. bet me $104,000? Would you? Well, I know you? you have $104,000. <laughs> no, no, no. $104,000. Fans. Twenty nine ninety nine because that beautiful pillow, Stephen Carter, that he have purchased from the strategist.ca. That was my with, that was uh, my purchase. With half of each of your faces and a full face of mine, I think we'll make a great great this addition great. to any living room. Ending, it, ending strong. Ending strong. Well, you strong. Know, we don't we don't do this for you, Corey. I said we do this for Carter. We do this Damn. for Carter. Right. We do ever Carter, I have to ask you. You are organizing these final ten days or so of voting. What are you doing if you're on either side? Are you are, are anything special? Anything interesting? Are you are you saving any of your firepower? Like seriously, right? Like I get that you're uh, Cor- contradicting and 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 contrasting. Corey's Corey not wrong. Is, you're not uh, is saving fun. anybody. But what are you actually doing here? Yeah. You're not saving anybody. You're you're pushing everything out. At the, I mean, what you're doing is telephone calls, texts, personal visits. I mean, everything you can think of. If you've got the full list of what is it, sixty thousand UCP members. You know who's cast ballots. Everybody who hasn't cast a ballot, you are banging on their doors. I mean, you might be driving around uh, in rural Alberta or or in in Calgary Hayes if you're Al Brown picking picking up ballots because you now can drop off the ballots in in these ridings. Uh, this is the tomfoolery that needs to happen at this particular stage. Now, some may, the, uh, this this what I'm describing isn't necessarily illegal, um, but it is uh, it's this requirement now. Find every single ballot that you can. And I'd be willing to bet that, as a, you know, 20, 25% of the ballots um, haven't been cast yet uh, that will be cast in this election. Corey, final question for you on this. And Carter, I'll get your take on it too. Do we see one final emotional appeal, one final like keynote style speech, one final big oomph from Jason Kenney? He started off the leadership review process with that speech with select members, that being telecast. Does he on his own dime, does he somehow try to do this same sort of statement piece for this final mushy middle membership? And would you advise it uh, is perhaps the the heart of my question. Your thoughts on that? No, I wouldn't yeah. advise it. I think that we advise oh, you're, you're Corey now. Okay, that's great. Uh, that's that's excellent. That's, that's, no, no, that's good. What did I? <laughs> we... No, the speech, this, we talked about this before. I don't want to see him. Anytime he pops up, he's going to give fuel to the other side. I want him making telephone calls. I mean, the guy can make 20, mm. 12 hours of telephone calls a day. You know, set him up on his own little dialer. Boom. Call everybody who hasn't voted. Carter, you are consistent with your strategy. I will say that, that you said, the, absolutely, that that was the last time you wanted to see Jason Kenny. We have seen him, by the way. Through some media interviews and through some like stories saying, you know, I will leave, kind of adding some initial drip messages. Corey, same question to you. Does he do a closing keynote? Does he do a final appeal? What do you think? No, I, I think that could come off as desperate. And uh, mm. there's, a, there's a lesson I would say to anybody in communications. It's really simple, but it's really important. You don't broadcast a narrow cast. So you're talking about a relatively small group of people at this point who are A, available to you and B, undecided. Um, and or right and what you want to do is you want to use the leader through those channels uh obviously you're going to have tons of ivr voice blasts hi this is jason kenny i need you to vote if you think that they're on your list uh you're going to be calling through to the people who you think are more prominent the you know the owls of the world who are out there who are riding presidents who you think are undecided not him specifically but mm-hmm, riding mm-hmm. presidents who you think that you could then encourage to reach out to their own personal networks and 
you're going to work through the highest value contacts as the leader. I would be really surprised if he doesn't have a phone list every night that he's just plowing through and nobody answers their phone anymore. So he's leaving the message on the phone saying, hey, this is Jason Kenny using their name so they know it was actually him saying, I called you at 942. Sorry, mm-hmm. I missed you. Uh, listen, I just wanted to connect with you about this. Feel free to text me anytime. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I got to jump into this other thing now because you don't want to have like a flurry of other communications back. But if you want to connect, just drop me a line and I'll give you a ring. And um, that's what you do at this point. If you go out and you do this kind of like massive, like appeal to the public, people are going to write an article about Jason Kenny desperately making an appeal for the public. Does he think he doesn't have this at this moment? Right. So there's just no point. Like it, it, that could actually feed a negative narrative you don't mm. need. So no, is, there any, stra- work the is there any show of strength strategy or tactic that could work for him? Or is it just go underground to what both of you are saying and work the phones? Uh, play out the show of strength, right? So we do a show of strength. Uh, the, what we're really doing is demanding that the other side counter our show of strength. Mm. Um, so they're going to do something of their own. And the worst thing that could happen is that we do a show of strength. Uh, 4,000 person rally, a la Pierre Polyev, right? And it's in, it's in Edmonton and look at our great show of strength. And then we open the door and they do 12,000 in Calgary. And let's be clear, 12,000 in Calgary is infinitely easier than 4,000 in Edmonton. And you can make that case. You can say, you know, what we had 4,000 in Edmonton won't matter. One member, one vote, they're showing that they can crush you. So don't do anything that, that goads the opposition into taking a stra- you know, taking a smack at you. Focus on that which matters, which is getting those votes, uh, getting those votes out. Corey, yeah, you don't broadcast a narrowcast. Think about a show of strength. Think about a four thousand person rally. How many hundreds of person hours is that that you could be working the phones, you and your cabinet, calling and saying, "Hey, uh, listen, we really need you to vote." Right. This is the personal connection, the deep connection that gets beyond. Like, look, you've had your ballot. There's 10 days left. You've you've got so little opportunity to vote uh, and you haven't yet. So obviously it's going to take a little bit more than just seeing a rally on television because they tried that. Right. They had their AGM, that opening thing, and that wasn't enough to get them to vote. So you're going to have to do that deeper connection to get them moving forward. We're going to leave that segment there. Move it on to our over under in our lightning round. Stephen Carter, are you ready? You seemed geared up. You seem like you're ready. Overrated or underrated Stephen Carter MLA endorsements as it relates to this specific leadership review. We've talked about this in the past for uh, nomination races. We've talked about this in the past for leadership races. For a leadership review, existing and sitting MLA endorsements overrated or underrated for this particular UCP leadership review for Jason Kenney? Overrated unless it's a surprise, right? All of a sudden you get uh, Richard Gottfried changing sides. then. It's a big deal. But if it's just the, you know, the 20 people who want him out continuing to be the 20 people who want him out, the 20 people who want him to stay continuing to want him to stay, and the other 25 keeping their goddamn mouths shut because they don't want to be involved in this discussion, um, you know, the, that's been basically but, what we've been seeing. Talk to me about the ones that have kept their mouth shut. If they start opening it in support, is that is that underrated? Could be, but they're not going to. Mm. Right? You think you Why think if you stayed silent this long, you know, like you're not going to change that positioning now. So, in that sense, you do you see any prominent folks within the current benches uh, opening up their mouths and, and endorsing them in, this, in these final ten days? Not the electeds, just the standards. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah. Or overrated, underrated MLA endorsements for this specific leadership review. I am going to go out on a limb and say underrated. Um, because with the benefit of hindsight, if Jason Kenny loses this, we are going to note the lack of endorsements of Jason Kenny as one of those things that was a bit of a canary in the coal mine here. I, I agree with Stephen on his point about it matters who the person is and whether, you know, if they flip or if they were expected or unexpected. In some ways, doesn't that just sort of speak to the wildness that we're in, that there are actually MLAs that we know are openly against the leader, uh, you know, and, and they could potentially move mm-hmm, to another mm-hmm. side or not is an interesting thought exercise, but we're just sort of numb to this level of open opposition to Jason Kenny that exists out there. But it's true. It's like the, you know, the old joke, um, uh, you're out with your drinking buddy and he says, there's no God. Well, he's drunk. Uh, you're out with the Pope and he says, there's no God. You think, holy shit, it's the Pope. And he's saying there's, there's no God, right? So um, it matters who it is. Uh, and if it goes against their interest, that speaks that speaks more strongly than if it doesn't. But the other thing I will say, and I'm, I'm throwing this as a question back to you two. Uh, cabinet, is anybody tracking active endorsements? I think it has been really eerily quiet how many cabinet minutes. I have not seen cabinet ministers standing up and defending Jason Kenney. Maybe real one way. hand, I think. And I haven't kept yeah. track, but I think it's like one hand numbers. This is my point. And, and if they are endorsing, they're doing it pretty damn quietly right now. And... um Probably so the just question is, do you think they're saving the their horse, like firepower on that, Corey? Or do you think no. that, that, don't you no. think the first thing, <laughs> if you're Jason Kenny, is turning to all these people and saying, you are endorsing me publicly and loudly? Yeah, I do. So this is my point. Like, what the hell is going on? And so um, am I just not seeing it? Is it all going to the party? Is anybody out there tracking that? Like, I, I'm really curious at this point. Who do we actually know is on record for or against I, Jason Kenny? And I say one handful, and, and I actually have not been tracking it. Like, I have no idea. Like, I, I can you think of one, like, as a thought exercise? Just one? I, no, not, I'm, I would be floored if there weren't a few. Uh, but yeah. I can't think of anybody who stood up there and really strongly supported him on this. Yeah, agreed. I think I think that's a great question, Corey. And it's it's interesting. Uh, and it's kind of what I was leading through in terms of like, what, what's what's going to happen in the next 10 days? Because there's some pieces that haven't happened, including cabinet endorsements. Corey, I'm going to stick with you on this. On a scale of one to 10, the political risk for the federal liberals on the probe of the Emergencies Act. So that's happening right now. One being not much risk, 10 being maximum risk, the risk to the federal liberals, right? Uh, there's the mandatory review slash probe after the act was used. The risk to them, in your mind, Corey, scale of one to ten. Yeah, it's there's real risk there because we obviously don't know what happened, but we know they backed out of it before. You know, there were certain moments that would have triggered additional conversation, uh, and that to me makes it seem like it wasn't necessarily the most required thing in the world. And if that's the case, then that could come up in a review, and that review could be pretty negative at a certain point. We're also in this powder keg moment still, and we've got Pierre Polyev on the other side, and he might just point to a few more things and draw a few more people into his crowd. Um, those kinds of reviews can be kind of can be dodgy for the government at the best of times and at the worst of times. Like you, you get involved in something like that, you're going to find something, right, if it's a broad enough review. And if there is truly some reason to believe the government didn't act perhaps as they needed to, well, then you're definitely going to find something. So the risk exists, that's for sure. 
Carter, same question to you. One to 10, the political risk for the federal liberals on the probe of their usage of the Emergencies Act. I'd say there's very little risk. Um, it just feels to me like uh, it was in place for such a short period of time. It, it was uh, it was used very, you know, very judiciously. I suspect that it was a um, relatively, uh, relatively small push, right? And, and I, I don't think we're going to see much unless the act is completely wrong. Carter, I'm going to stick with you for our next one. Doug Ford is going to the polls. The Ontario election starts this week. Advice for Doug Ford in his first week. He's got a polling advantage. The progressive parties seem to be split in terms of where their support might be going uh, between the NDP and the liberals in Ontario. Your crystallized advice for week one for Doug Ford as he begins the election campaign in Ontario. Don't take anything for granted. The polls at this particular moment don't mean anything. If they stay the same, it's because you did your job. You did their campaign. If they move, um, that's to be expected. We have seen time and time again in Canadian politics that these campaign periods matter, uh, that the election period is when the election is won or lost. So don't fuck it up and don't fuck up the election. Uh, so you know, that's the that's the slogan. That's the piece that he needs to focus on right now is is minimizing his own fuck up, because the second he fucks up, um, you know, the Ontario liberals are right there. They're sniffing away at this. And uh, I think you could also see a move away from the Ontario NDP because there is a if if one party coalesces, if he looks beatable, you'll see people moving away from their preferred choice to the party that will beat him to the winner. And if that happens, Doug Ford's not 42 looking down. Doug Ford's 32 looking up. Corey, same questions for you, Doug Ford. Advice for the first week as the Ontario election campaign begins. Yeah, it's not his fuck-ups he needs to worry about. He's he's Doug Ford. He's a Ford. I mean, fuck-ups are baked into the equation here. Uh, his support has been pretty durable uh, across the board here. Super basic analysis here. The risk is one of the two opposition campaigns takes off, right? If all of a sudden Horvath just coalesces and goes way back and all of that support goes to the liberals or vice versa, right? And um and that is I think what he's got to watch out for. So he's got to make sure that in he's in, you know, in his own remarks back, he's not accidentally propping up one at the expense of the other. He's got to be quite intentional about making sure that this doesn't seem to be something that feeds. Well, look, we've seen this a thousand times. I'll use two elections in 2015 as examples, right? There was the federal election where all of a sudden, uh, you know, the three parties were all polling pretty closely going into the French language debate. And then all of a sudden coming out of that, the NDP dropped in Quebec. The liberals managed to climb. There was a little bit of daylight there and it just fed a virtuous cycle for the liberals, a vicious cycle for the NDP. Liberals continued to climb. NDP continued to drop. Everybody said the NDP are the option or sorry, the liberals are the option here. The NDP are out. Uh, and all of a sudden we've got a liberal majority government, the only majority government that uh, Trudeau has managed to get so far. Uh, the other version would be in 2015 here in Alberta. Um, uh, the the PCs went into that election in the lead. But ultimately, there was so much anti-PC antipathy after a couple of very strong uh, moments, including, uh, you know, then Premier Jim Prentice giving his look in the mirror speech, what was perceived as arrogance of the merging together but with the floor crossing led by Danielle Smith into the PC cabinet. Uh, and um, people looked around and they said, who, if, 
if not them, who? And uh, and I think the fate was sealed on debate night when uh, Prentice pointed to Notley and in all of his actions and all his words made clear he saw her as the opponent. I think he was trying to be tactical. I think he thought there's no way Alberta would elect an NDP government. But what Albertans saw was, oh, they're the opposition. And all of a sudden, boom, there you go. And a virtuous cycle kicks off again. And we got to a point where after that debate, basically there were no polls that showed the NDP not beating the PCs. And before that debate, there were almost no polls that didn't show the Wild Rose beating the PCs. So Mm. the actions of the premier can dictate how the conversation goes going forward. Not to take anything away from Rachel Notley and her debate performance, but a lot of that was also an own goal by Jim Prentice, right? He made a pretty serious fuck up in that debate. I'm going to actually dovetail off that and ask you a final question, Corey. I'll begin with you because there was a third participant at that debate, one Brian Jean. Yeah. And he is now actively <laughs> involved and will be for the next 17-ish days or so, at the very least, as it relates to the fate of Jason Kenney. We haven't seen a lot of Brian Jean, Corey. So the question to you, I ask, is if you were giving advice to Brian Jean for the course of the next two weeks, what would it be? My advice was the same as it's been for a long time, which is it's not about you. The more you make it about you, the worse you make your chances here. Because um, Jason Kenney's whole line of don't compare me uh, to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, got a big assist when Danielle Smith and Brian Jean decided they wanted to participate in the conversation there. Because it's no longer... Maybe Jason Kenney is the guy we don't want and we can find the perfect conservative leader. There were a couple of imperfect conservative contenders to compare to. Don't feed that. If you're Brian Jean, work the phones, do the stuff on background, the same advice we had for Jason Kenney, you should not be going out there in a big way. Don't see a lot of Brian Jean, Carter. Seems like he may have taken some of that advice. Question for you is, does your advice change to him? As we ran out the episode, your advice to Brian Jean for the next two weeks? No, he's better off to stay away. And Jason Kenny's, you know, um, better to talk to, you know, when, when he's making those telephone calls, mention how Brian Jean couldn't win in 2015 and how Danielle Smith screwed up 2015. Um, United Conservative Party is not based on on politicians' actions. It's based on the people's actions. And that's where Jason Kenny's always represented. Um, Danielle and, uh, and Brian have severely fucked this up by getting involved. As quickly as they did, if they just did what I suspect uh, Travis Taves is doing and shut the hell up until such time as there's actually a leadership, uh, Travis is going to have a much stronger position. We are going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 986 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time. 